Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see your smiling eyebrows. And uh, those that are worshiping with us from home, we want to say welcome. Uh, you're our largest congregation, and so if we can uh, help you connect with us, uh, if you have a need, uh, we're here for you. And uh, all you need to do is uh, drop us an email or, or give us uh, an old-fashioned pick, pick up a phone or a cell phone and, and give us a call. Uh, this morning. So we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 4 this morning. So if you'll come with me to John chapter 4 and let's pray together as we begin our study. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning and Lord, we pray, Lord, that you'd speak to our heart and that you'd encourage us uh, with the grace of God and that your grace would have its work, its full weight in our heart that we could experience the transformation that we have available through Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord and Savior. So, Lord, bless the reading of your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began with the introduction of John chapter 4, and we really talked about the lens, how you see Scripture. How do you look at the scriptures? Do you look at it in a sense of, of where am I in that story? Or do you kind of look at it as kind of a, a kind of an analytical thing that you're going to, uh, you know, dice up and, you know, do your, your intellectual pursuit of it? Well, this text, John chapter 4, is that if you look at it that way, you're going to deprive yourself of the transformational power that's available through the grace of God. Because when we look at this text, what we see is we see Jesus, we see his disciples, and we see a woman who's broken, a woman that has had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. And this woman is broken and, and, and isolated and desperate, and if we see ourselves as that woman in the text, that begins to mold our heart and open our heart towards the grace of God. I don't know about you, but the great danger in church life is to become a professional Christian. You know, many people consider me, well, you're a professional Christian. You know, you're highly educated, and, and uh, you know, you know the Bible so well. But, you know, we can get to a place in our walk with the Lord where we feel like we've got it all nailed together, where we know all our Bible verses. And, you know, when we get to that place in our life, our hearts can be cold and the grace of God can be inaccessible to us. And so the way to remedy that is to see yourself for really who you are without Christ. And without Christ, I'm that person. I'm the woman at the well. I'm the woman, I'm, I'm the promiscuous woman. I'm the woman, I'm the adulterous woman. I'm the, the person that's broken. I'm the person that's socially isolated. I'm the person that no one in the community wants to talk to. But Christ came into my life. And he healed my brokenness and forgave me of my sin. I'm not a professional Christian anything. I'm not someone that has arrived. So the great challenge for us as believers when we approach texts like this, will you consider yourself as the woman at the well? 
Or we could use another parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Would you see yourself as the prodigal? Would you see yourself as the elder brother? Because everybody in this room, that's the, that's the great problem, is that we tend to morph into the elder brother rather than the prodigal coming home to find the father. And the father, we, we kind of have that elder brother attitude towards those that are in a place of brokenness. And so when we come to the text, looking at the text through the lens of who am I in that text has a way of releasing to us the grace of God. All that was last week. And this week we're going to work through our text verse by verse. So come with me to John chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, why? Why did he do that? Why did he leave Judea and go to Galilee? Well, come with me to John chapter 7, and John chapter 7 is going to give us the answer to that. We can see John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go, in, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to what? They were seeking to kill him. And so Judea, where Jerusalem is and the temple is, was the seat of power for the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And they had heard about Jesus, and they had heard about John the Baptist, and they were jealous because they wanted to make followers for themselves, and Jesus and John the Baptist were taken away. And so Jesus departs, not out of fear, not out of worry, but Jesus departs to, out of Judea towards Galilee for this reason, verse 6, chapter 7. Jesus said to them, my time has what? My time has not yet come. And see, the great truth about the ministry of Jesus is that he was always inten intentional. He was always purposeful. He was always doing what the Father wanted him to do. And when Jesus' time was up, he willingly laid down his life. You see the same thing in staying in chapter 7. You can go over to verse 30. So they were seeking the Pharisees, the religious leaders, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on Jesus because his what? Right, because his hour had not yet come. And so when we come to John chapter 4 and look at these first couple of verses, we know this about Jesus, is that he's intentional, he's purposeful, He's following the Father's uh, heart for him. He's following the Father's mission. And we continue with the text in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, technically, is that true? Did Jesus have to pass through Samaria to get to Galilee? Well, no, the answer, that's correct. The answer is no. You're a really, really smart group here. The, I think the uh, 830, they were somewhat sleepy a little bit. But, you know, when we look at this 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 statement, he had to pass through Samaria. We all know that there's another route. There's a northern route. It, matter of fact, the northern route the Jews took because they didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But Jesus had to. Why? Because Jesus was purposeful. He was intentional. And he was about this. And we'll learn this from the text. 
He was about to seek and to save one person. That's who he was concerned about. One woman, one woman that was broken, one woman that was shunned by her, by her community, uh, one woman that was desperate and seeking love and affection, one woman Jesus was seeking after the same way that he has seeks after and has sought after both you and I is that the Holy Spirit is seeking our hearts, wooing our hearts, drawing our heart. Come back to the text with me. So he came to the town of some, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, uh, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hours, about noontime. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, to understand this and unpackage this is that in 721, the Assyrians came and captured who? The northern tribe, which was by the name of Israel. And then when the Assyrians came in, they took all the captives. Well, not all of them. They left the poor. They left those that really didn't have a trade. But they took all the wealthy. They took all the influential. They took all the people with a trade. And they removed them to Assyria, and they repopulated the area with riffraff. And those people that came into Samaria, came into the northern tribe, they intermarried, and they did this. They brought all their false gods with them. And when you think of false gods, they're not a big, huge thing. They were little trinkets. They were little statues. And they believed that they were bringing their gods from their home into this new land, and so that their gods would have power over the land. But one thing happened. They began to hear about the God of the Jews. They began to hear through reading just the first five books how God loved them and had a plan for their life. And they began to convert over to Judaism, but they never totally got free. And so the Jews looked at the Samaritans who lived in Samaria, whose capital of Israel used to be called Samaria. They looked at them and they despised them. They hated them because they were, they were uh, unclean and they weren't of the right ethnic group and they weren't of the right color and they weren't of the right influence and they didn't come from the right family tree. You know, when I was a boy, when I was a young boy, this truth became apparent to me when I was a young boy. My Uncle Mark and my, my Aunt Marie, they bought a home. It was a beautiful home. It was, a, it was like this, this all-brick house, and it had uh, hardwood floors, and, uh, and they had actually wood moldings. They had windows that worked. They had closets. I mean, they, they, they had everything. And going to visit their home was like, wow, look at this house that they have, and, and isn't it amazing? And... It's got a beautiful backyard. And when Uncle Mark and Aunt Marie bought this house, the family 
went wild. The family was like, how could he do this? How could he go buy this house? Why did he buy this house? Doesn't he know who we are as a people? See, Uncle Mark did one thing wrong. He, bought, he literally bought a house on the other side of the railroad tracks located in West Medford. And so we'd go to visit Uncle Mark's house. We'd want to go out and play in the yard. No, you can't play out in the yard. We want to go play out in the street. No, you can't play in the street. Want to go down, down the street to the park and, and run around as little kiddos, just like we did you know, on Fountain Street in Medford. Joe Perella was here at the 830. And Joe Perella and I used to run around and play street hockey. We'd go down the street, we'd ride our bikes all in the neighborhood. But no, visit Uncle Mark's house. You ain't doing any of that. You're going to stay in the house. Now, they try to make it work for us because all, as kiddos, you know, Uncle Mark and Aunt Marie, they had an endless supply of, dick, of uh, hoodsy cups. And so as soon as we get there, we're going for the hoodsy cup. You know, one thing about, one thing that was unique about Uncle Mark and Aunt Marie is they didn't have any children. They didn't have any children. So they didn't worry about the school system. They didn't worry about West Medford. They didn't really care what people thought of them. They had a nice home. But you know, we couldn't go out in the yard and we couldn't go on the street and we couldn't go down the play, playground because that's where the blacks lived. That's where all the African-Americans lived in Medford from, from Civil War onward. They put them on the other side of the tracks. And as a young boy, we were, we were educated that, oh, you don't go there. You don't go to the black community. You don't go with the African-Americans. You never called them African-Americans in those days. You don't go there. They live where? Across the tracks, literally. Matter of fact, growing up, growing up, I never, I never met a black person. Never met an African American. Wasn't one to be found in my neighborhoods, in the extended neighborhoods. The first black person I came to know was a guy by the name of Carl Chisholm. And Carl Chisholm and I were, you, you kind of get my last name, right, Conway? Carl Chisholm and I were in the same homeroom. We shared the same drafting table in, in, in drafting class as a ninth grader. And I liked Carl Chisholm. He was a good man. He had a good heart. Matter of fact, he was twice my size, so I needed a friend. But my peers were like, why are you hanging around with Chisholm? Why are you doing that? I said, he's my friend. He's my friend. The lady at the well was like my friend. The lady at the well was living across the tracks. And Jesus came and he defied culture, stereotypes. Jesus came. And he defied the prejudices of his day. He defied the barriers, social barriers, economic barriers, religious barriers, and he defied gender barriers. Why? Because he came to save this woman's soul. You know, today our culture has a way of looking at these things quite differently. It's called critical race theory. They would have looked at Jesus' activity as, oh, you can't do that. 
you're in a position of power. She's, 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 she's not powerful. She's a woman. You can't, really, you can't really deliver her. You can't really set her free. And Jesus says, I'll have none of that. I'm going to reach this soul. I'm going to go cross those barriers. Critical race theory is the antithesis of Christianity, the antithesis of the gospel. Because all God's children are made in whose image? Imago Dio. We're all made in the image of God. We're all worthy of salvation. We're all worthy of the grace of God. We're all worthy to be friends with one another. And Jesus comes in his day and breaks down those barriers to reach a soul, to reach a heart, to reach a broken woman. And that's our call as a church, is that when someone is broken, shouldn't it matter what their color is, their gender is? Shouldn't matter at all. Because what matters, what matters to God is the person, has the person experienced a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Come back to the text with me. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and, and he would have given you living water. And the, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Does she get it or not? No, she doesn't get it. She's like Nicodemus. She's hearing what he's saying, but her heart is what? Her heart is dark. Her heart hasn't been touched by grace. What is Jesus talking about? Well, we could go back to, say, chapter 7, seeing we've already been there, and it'll tell us what Jesus is talking about. John 7, verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is he who said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been poured out, not yet been given, and Jesus is offering her salvation, living water. And she's unclean. She's not part of this, the approved religious group. She's not the right gender. And Jesus said, I want to give you a gift. I want to give you this living water. She still doesn't get it in verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water leaping up to eternal life. And so he goes a little deeper. Verse 15 says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't have to come here day after day after day and do this work. Give me the water 
that leaps up that I won't have to come to this well again. She doesn't get it. And then Jesus says to her in verse 18, 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come and have him come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in, the, in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I only have one question. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus push this broken woman's heart? Why did he? Why did he put his finger on her heart and expose her? Why did he call her out? Well, there's a simple answer for that. If we looked at John chapter 3, there's a simple answer for it. But before I get there, who are you? Can you identify with this woman of the well? Are you a professional Christian? Do you have so much Bible knowledge that, you know, you just got it nailed? Maybe you have a, an MDiv or an MA, or maybe you have something more than that. Has your heart become so professionalized? Who are you? Jesus puts his finger on this woman's brokenness. Why? Because if you can answer that, you might be able to access the grace of God again in your life, that you could have joy, that you could have peace, no matter what the circumstances of your life are. Look at John chapter 3. Why did Jesus do it? John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus put his finger on her brokenness because she wants to hide. She does not want to come into the light. She does not want grace. Take a look at the take a look at the text with him. The text with me, verse nineteen. The woman said to him, "Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet." And then, what she what does she does? What does she do? She goes back into the darkness. She goes back into. Uh, creating distance between her and someone that is making her feel what? Uncomfortable. Because she feels the probing of Jesus into her darkness. And she said, I don't want to leave the darkness, so let's talk about religion. Breaks my heart. You talk to people, talk about salvation in Christ's name, talk about the peace and joy that can come from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and they, they want to talk religion. But the saddest part is I do that in my own heart. 
is that when the Holy Spirit comes and convicts, when the Holy Spirit comes and, and begins to woo me to find my, my, my joy in Christ, my peace in Christ, when the Holy Spirit begins to woo me and, and wants me to find my satisfaction and my identity and who I am in Christ, I want to talk about my demon thesis. It is becoming a professional Christian, which, which is our undoing, because it removes us from the grace of God, and it allows us to stay in darkness. Look at this lady. Who are you? You this lady? I'm this lady, and I'm a professional Christian. I'm this lady because I hunger for the grace of God. I hunger for the joy of God in my life. I hunger for his peace. But that only comes from one source, the grace of God. And that is a gift that God gives to a seeking heart, to a heart that wants him, longs for him, a heart that only finds their satisfaction. But my default is I'm the elder brother. I'm the, I'm the pro about religious things, you know? Oh, I know. It, it, it kind of goes like this. I'm not really judging this person. No, I'm really not. I'm just making a godly observation about their life. Come back to the text with me. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people are to worship. Does Jesus answer her question? Not directly. He doesn't, he doesn't, it's amazing. He doesn't enter the religious question, doesn't entertain it, but goes to the heart of the matter, which is how you worship and who you worship. Take a look at the text, verse 21. Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And that's going to happen in 70 AD. The Romans are going to do what to the temple? Going to wipe it out. The hour is coming. It's just about here. You worship what you do not know. Why does he say that? Because she only had the Pentateuch. That's all she would... She didn't have Isaiah 53, suffering servant. She didn't have any of that. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Come back to verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that is me. I was once lost, but Christ. 
I was, once was the woman at the well, but Christ. I once was the prodigal son, but Christ. I once, oh, I am the elder brother, but will I allow Christ? See, that is the point of transformation. That is the point of spiritual growth for most of us in this room. Are we the woman at the well? But Christ. Are we the prodigal son? But Christ. Are we the elder brother? I want to say, but Christ. But who I am in Christ. Because the grace of God is active and moving in the grace of God is transformational. Whether you've been a Christian for six months or six years or 60 years. Come back to the text. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit meaning worship from the heart. Spirit meaning worship that only finds its satisfaction in Christ. Worship that only delights in Jesus. Worship that when our hearts sing and make melody, we find our joy in the Lord. For his joy is our strength. His joy is our victory. His joy transcends the circumstances of life. His joy sets us free. And we worship from the deep well that he's given us where that leaping waters of the Holy Spirit leap from our heart and find their satisfaction in joy in the Lord. Truth, it's who we worship. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. And the woman is just blown away. And she confesses the hope of every godly Samaritan. She points back to the great prophet that was promised to come. She says, oh, when the Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, he's going he's gonna, to, and you can just sense the brokenness of her heart. And you can sense the conviction. If you've ever been convicted of sin, you know where this woman's at. This... This man has told her her whole life story. She tried, she tried religion to get out of it, to create some distance, and yet he pursues. The woman said to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. Look at the language. The one who is called the Christ, the anointed one. I know when he comes. He will tell us, 
He will tell us all things. He will answer my pain. He will answer my brokenness. He will heal me. Jesus put his finger on her heart because he came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus had to go to Samaria for one woman, a broken woman. And she confesses the promise, in her, the promise that she's held in her heart. And Jesus does something absolutely remarkable. He reveals himself to her, and she is changed because she encounters, as John put it early in chapter 1, she encounters grace and truth. She encounters God's love in sending the Son, the Christ, the Messiah. Look what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That same language that, that was spoken to at the, at the burning bush to Moses, I am who I am. Who do I say? I am. And in John chapter 8, we're the children of Abraham. Before Abraham, I am. And the woman at that moment is transformed. And how do we know that? We'll see it next week. Because rivers of living water are leaping up in her. And she can't contain it. The, the secret of power evangelism is, is, is really not to be something you're not. I can't be Jesus. I can't look at a man's heart and see everything that's in a man or a woman's heart. But the power of evangelism here is this, out of brokenness, out of brokenness, came great healing. Out of brokenness came great joy. Out of brokenness came great forgiveness. Out of brokenness came the grace of God. Who are you? Are we professionals? Educated in the finer things of the faith? Or are we simply a woman at the well, needing living water? Who are you? Really? You're the prodigal? Tired of eating with the pigs. Maybe I could go home, see Dad. At least I'd have something to eat. Who are you? Are you the elder brother? I think on any given day, I can be any one of those. And the thing that continually transforms is a hunger for that living water. Lord, would you fill me again? Lord, would you empower me again? You say, well, I thought this baptism of the Holy Spirit was one time and you got it all. Well, 
It may be true for you, but I leak. And I need him each and every day so that I can live each and every day in a way that glorifies Christ and so that I can have joy. Yeah. Joy each and every day to embrace life, to embrace those that I love, to embrace those that are porcupines. Joy. Living water every day. Who are you? I hope you find this week that, yeah, I'm the woman at the well. And say who she is in your heart. I'm an adulterer. That's, I'm just like her. Yep. Just like, I'm, I'm just like her. I, I live across the tracks in West Medford. But Christ. Just like her. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And I have no other identity, no intersectionality other than who I am in Christ. Because that is the place of true identity. I can be the best Eddie Conway this side of heaven because of who I am in Christ and the hope and the joy and the peace that he brings to those who love him, have turned from their sins, and have accepted him as Lord and Savior. Say amen. Amen. It's amazing. We get to close with the Lord's table this morning. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the table.